All right, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Titus where we will look at only four words today. All right, because we are slow. All right. Uh, matter of fact, as you're going to the book of Titus, you might as well stop. Uh, like when you see Ephesians chapter two, just jam a finger in there because we're going to go to there more than Titus chapter one. But we'll be hanging out a little bit in Titus chapter one um, because of something that Paul says. Now, to get there, I, I want us to uh, open up by reflecting on that video that asks the question, what is truth? What is truth? This is a loaded question at every level. There is nothing simple about it. I do not want to come up here this morning and throw that out there and pretend like that is an easy issue. I don't want to insult you by just assuming that, oh, it's a no-brainer because it is a challenging question. I mean, just for the mere fact that there is the reality that there is truth and then truth and then truth and then truth. Truth versus truth versus truth versus truth. There are different ideas and different thoughts and different things and different measures of what is truth. And in this, you have to understand that, for example, some truth doesn't really matter. It means nothing in the big scope of things. For example, my son, whom I love, loves to come to me and tell me all of the truths of how you beat Halo Reach. All right? So... He tells me all these truths. He tells me what the battle damage of a banshee is as far as what it can take versus what a scorpion tank can take. They're all true and I don't care, right? So um, they're, they're, they're true, but they're not necessary. They're not mission critical. They're not important to life, but they're just little truths that we know. They mean nothing. Then there's other truths and they actually mean something. They have some impact on the world around us beyond ourselves. And so uh, scientific truths, mathematical truths, historical truths, uh, these have some level of impact. And so they mean something. There's other truths that are truths until they are analyzed more thoroughly. And then they're found out to be false. Right. Uh, We see this all the time in one of my favorite disciplines, which is science. Science will try something, test something, and and say that's true, and then they'll realize later that, oh no, we didn't fully realize. It's not to blame science, it's that we're human. We're learning, right? So truths become toppled in time by more accurate truths. That makes it complicated. And then you add all of that together with then one great fundamental, that is, there are certain truths that mean everything. Some truths mean nothing. Some truths mean something. Some truths get overturned with greater observation. But there are some truths that matter 100%. That everything hinges on that truth. It is a truth that will matter a hundred years from now. A truth that will matter a thousand years from now. A truth that will matter 5,000 years from now. See, in some weird way, we just sort of jumped into a new realm of truth because most truths are kind of for the here and now, but then there are certain truths that really matter, truths that jump the temporal into the eternal, and that's really the question that most people have, right? When they say, what is truth, they're not asking about halo reach. 
Uh, They're not necessarily even asking about history or math necessarily. They're really saying, what is the ultimate meaning to life, to the universe? Is there a capital truth that matters when I take my last breath? See, that's the question that we all want to ponder, right? That's the thing that we need to sort out. And that that is difficult to sort out that truth especially in the climate we live in. In fact, if anything, I think it's complicated more so by where we find ourselves on the human timeline. The arrow that says you are here is at a very unique point in the human development, right? I mean, you think about it. This just goes down not so much to truth, but the issue of knowledge even. We're not just pondering what is true. We're pondering what is true in an infinite sea, almost it seems like at times, of knowledge, I mean, think about it. At no time in human history is there a greater literacy rate than what we have today. So everybody can read, some better than others, but everybody pretty much can read in our culture. Right? So they have the ability to access knowledge. We have libraries all over the place. We can access knowledge. Nowadays we have the internet. Oh, thank you, Jesus, and curse you, Satan, at the same time. Um, you know? Because we can just gain information all the time, man. We go to Bing and bam, we've got it, right? Just there. And then we can access it on our phones and we can put it on our iPods and we can go on and on and on of ways that we gather knowledge. And all of that knowledge then sometimes obscures our ability to then really ponder truth. It even gets confused. Knowledge is truth and truth is knowledge. And that's what's so strange because as I started thinking about it this week, I thought, boy, we have lots of knowledge, but not a lot of truth at times, it seems like. I mean, I I love the political season because that pretty much captures it, right? Lots of knowledge, not a lot of truth. Every party has a plan that will fix it. Lots of knowledge, not lots of truth, right? That's sort of the dilemma. I even see where there is this thing now that we are elevating the quest for knowledge, but we're belittling and downvaluing truth. We even get nervous. Think about it. Even for those in this room that follow Jesus to believe that he's the only way, that love the gospel and believe the Bible and all of that, think about how nervous we are to say, here is the truth. I mean, we're nervous about it. Why? Because we're afraid that we're going to get belittled, we're going to be mocked, we're going to be ostracized, we're going to be called small-minded because we think there is an absolute truth because of the climate we live in. It's almost like people are saying more and more, you just can't say that there's truth, right? It's not within the cards that we have been dealt. There's too much to know, especially when you get to the spiritual side. When we come to this thing of spirituality, of metaphysics, of who is God, everything else, at that point, everybody kind of looks and says, now you're in the realm of opinion. There's truth and then there's knowledge and then there's opinion. And what you think is truth is just an opinion. Right? So all of that makes us really, really hard. And I think it complicates things when we look at Paul's opening phrase then in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. I look at that and I go, all right, Paul, what are you getting at, man? Which truth, which thing do we need to know? Because that is loaded. Now, with that, I don't think Paul is interested in every truth. 
I don't think he wants to lead us into all truths under all sorts of umbrellas. I don't believe even the Bible. You ready? I'm a Bible-believing conservative evangelical, and I don't believe this book has every answer for everything under the sun. It does not tell me how to beat level seven on Halo Reach. Right? Going back. So, it doesn't tell me everything about everything, but it tells me something about someone who is everything. And therefore, when Paul says this, he's not trying to throw the largest net possible. It's a very particular net. He's saying, I want you to know what is the most important truth. The truth of all truths that matter for your life. The only one that's going to matter when you expel your last breath. It won't matter how well you could do geometry. It won't matter how well you knew history. It will not matter how much you had surfed the internet and learned all knowledge. What will matter at the last breath is this one great truth that that Paul wants to drive home. And what is that truth? It's the gospel truth. And the gospel truth, the good news truth, the victory message truth is, and I want you to contemplate each of these little phrases, the gospel truth is that Christ alone, Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, makes dead people alive. That's the only real truth that Paul is driving at in this text. But it matters a lot. It matters a lot, even for us Bible-believing, gospel-claiming Christians. That phraseology right there matters a lot. Because notice, it's Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, because we were dead and made alive through those things alone. It's not us. We don't do it. We can't make that happen. It's only by God's grace. That truth, it seems so simple. Like, you go, I got that, Matt. We, we talked about this last week. I, I, I think we struggle with it. I really do. And we're going to unpack why I think we struggle with it. But this is why I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 2. So if you jammed a finger in there, go ahead and flip it there now. If you didn't, I actually want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to go there because I want you to see exactly how, uh, how Paul words the gospel truth. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, making dead people alive. I want us to see this ourselves. Because I, I think it's profound, because again, I think, I, I think it gets lost. So Paul tells us what our condition was. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead means dead. Not kind of dead, sort of dead, mostly dead. It's dead, dead, dead. We were dead. We were so dead, uh, we could not see God on His terms. We were that dead. On top of that, we had trespass, we had sin, we had violation, we rebelled, right? Verse 2, it says, "In In which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature. Are little babies born good? No. Go to the nursery and there's proof. Right? Go. Right? 
baby throwdown, smackdown, octagon, back in the back with two-year-olds because by nature they are this, right? And, and now I have teenagers. Clears up, I'm sure. Um, right, so by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's one truth. Paul says, broken. Everybody broken. Everybody dead. Everybody sinful. The whole race is contaminated. It has a problem. Listen to those, those, those phrases, right? The state is dead. The disposition, my own thing. The destination, wrath. I mean, this is some strong stuff, you know. This is, I mean, again, you are not going to roll into like, like Joel Olstein and hear that. Right? But that's the state. That's the problem. That's the condition of man apart from a truth that intervenes. Right? So that's the issue. Now, in this, I want to be clear. We, we usually look at that kind of a text. And we go, well, um, you know, that's talking about radical immorality. We're, we're talking about, like, really pagan people. That, that, that's not at all necessarily what's embedded in that. You know, the, the big idea that I think it's so important for us to realize about the, the human condition and even uh, how Satan tries to stir certain things in the human condition and, and what all falls under sin, basically. But get this, Satan will use God or gods or no God to keep you in that state. He, he, he doesn't care. We think, oh, no, no, this is talking about the godless. No, this can be people that claim God but are absent of the grace or heart of God. Most of the world claims God in some fashion, form, or definition, but it doesn't mean that it understands the real essence of who God is. Satan will use perversion or he'll use piety to keep us in this state. He'll use the church and he'll use brothels. He'll use philanthropy and he'll use philandering. He'll use spirituality. He will use skepticism. He does not care which end of the spectrum he uses, as long as it keeps us in a state that we see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Keeps us blind. Keeps us not seeing God, seeking God, desiring God, wanting God, being aware of a need for God, seeing our own sinfulness, seeing our own independence, seeing our own drive to do what we want to do. If we just stay there, we're dead. We're dead. And I think this is important because sometimes, as we're going to see in a little bit, we get fixated on morality. We actually start to think that the better we are, the closer we are to God. This is why Satan loves religion. This is why he loves legalism. This is why he loves morality, because you think you're good enough. He loves that. But all of that is just trespass and sin and being children of wrath because it's us. It's us. It's all of us. It's what we do or do not do, what we accomplish or do not accomplish. It's us. And that's a lie. So Paul says, this is the condition, right? That you were dead. You were under wrath. You were doomed. And then I love verse 4. But God. You can stop right there. We were this and this and this and this, but God. God. 
He says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That is an amen phrase, if ever there was one. If ever there was one, because just slow it down. We were dead. We were sinful. We were destined for wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, in mercy, in grace, while you were still dead in your trespass. We didn't wake up and go, oh man, I need God. Oh man, I I see my stuff. I, I, I need a Savior. But what this text is actually saying is, you were dead, you stayed dead, he pops in in mercy and in his love while you were dead and made you alive. He made us alive. We don't make us alive. He makes us alive. But not just alive on our own, he says, made us alive together with Christ. He didn't say, all right, I'm going to pull you out of the grave, but now you're naked and homeless, man. He says, I'm going to pull you out of the grave, I'm going to make you alive, and I'm going to put you with my son. By grace, you've been saved. He says in verse 6, and he's raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in heavenly places. So again, not just, hey, you're alive and naked and homeless. It's no, hey, you're alive and you're taking up and you're seated with Christ. Right? I love that. Seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, you keep, if anything, this is part of the reason why we say it's all about Jesus here. It's all about Jesus. You were dead. You're made alive. You're in Christ, with Christ, seated with Christ. And for all eternity, you will thank Christ. It's all about Jesus. See, that's the truth. That's the truth. And so then Paul closes out. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's just not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, I think we're all going to get it, right? I don't get in on my own. It's all of Christ. Here's the deal. You don't stay in on your own. It's all of Christ. One day in eternity, as you enjoy all of eternity, you don't enjoy eternity just because you got through the pearly gates. You do so because it's all of Christ. See, I can't make enough of a stink about this topic because I think it is so important to how we live our lives. We realize that we live our lives only in the life of Christ. It's life in the sun, in the grace of the sun, for the glory of the sun. Uh, that is the truth. Sometimes it's easily obscured or is it really that big a deal? But it, it's important to understand because what it means is that I am an imperfect sinner saved only by the perfect grace of Jesus. That's all. That's all. In fact, I would go a step further and to say, I I don't even think Jesus' biggest concern was taking a bad person and making him good. I think his biggest concern was taking a dead person and making him alive in himself. 
And, and that is the nature of grace. Now, does that mean uh, I can be a bad person after that? No, but here's the deal. Uh, grace is so potent, it isn't conditioned on my being good enough or bad enough once I'm in Christ. It's not conditioned by that. Otherwise, it's not grace. It's grace working with my whatever to, to close the deal. That's not the case. Because I'll, I'll tell you this, and some of you go, oh yeah, we know you pretty well. We know you're not that good. But I'm not that good. I'm not that good. When I first came to Duval, I ended up developing a relationship with a man that has w- now been promoted to being the bishop of the ward that they will build here in Duval for the Mormon church. And uh, he's a great guy. He's a really great guy. I would honestly say, I think he's a better man than I am. I, I think he's gooder. That's a good word, all right? He's gooder. You know why I say that? Because, again, I'm in a public school. All right. So, I know right now there's English teachers just, no, make him stop, all right? So, right? But he is, I think, a more moral man than I am, right? He's more dedicated to certain moral codes than perhaps I am. But I also know my standing isn't rooted in how good I am. My standing is rooted in how good Jesus is. And I am in Jesus. Right? This is like real theology stuff here, brought into a context that hopefully we can get. He did it all. He did it all. That's the truth. That is the truth that matters. The truth that matters is that the gospel that we believe is not. You ready? I want you to hear this. The gospel that we believe is not about behavior modification. The gospel is not about behavior modification. The gospel is about a life and heart transformation. If it was just about behavior modification, then really good people wouldn't need the gospel. But that's not what's needed. What's needed is a heart transformation where the life of God lives in the soul of man and brings transformation. Not just people that are good people, but people that are godly people because they do it because they love God and God resonates in them. That's what Paul cares about. Paul went to war with the moralists. Paul said the moralist gospel was damnable. And we'll see that in a minute. What he wants is life transformation because Christ lives in you. I think sometimes we almost think like, hey man, when I get saved, my whole job is then to grow by distancing myself from that initial step of the gospel. The reality is transformation comes not when you distance from, but when you dive deeper into the gospel. The deeper you go in the gospel, the deeper you understand grace. Therefore, you realize, man, it's not about me adhering to principles. It's about me adoring God. And as I adore God, I adhere to all the principles, not because I have to, but because I get to, because I love him. That's the transformation of grace. And see, I think this is tough for us because by nature, we are earners. We are earners. We want to earn. We want to get credit where credit is due. Right? We want to achieve. I think all of us have a little teeny man that lives right here. A little teeny tiny Pharisee. Right? Right? Honestly. You know, just right there. And he's just like, 
just, just do the law, do the law, do the law. Right? You know? I, I do. I really believe. We all have the inner legalist. And so even as we go, I need Jesus, I need the gospel, I need grace, but now I'm in, that little legalist voice just starts talking. And we start thinking that our merit is through our morality. We want to be like Peter when, when he said to Jesus, oh, but we left everything to follow you. Give me credit. Right? And that's where we're challenged. And therefore, I think that is why Paul says it is the knowledge of the truth. Not just the truth that he's pushing toward. It is the knowledge of the truth. It's coming to grips with this truth of the gospel, this grace of the gospel in a very potent way. And I think this is hard because, frankly, uh, gospel knowledge is a foreign language. It is a foreign language, certainly to the world. The world, when it hears the language of the gospel, when it hears the language of grace, when it hears the language of what Jesus has done, it is foreign. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says it this way. He says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers and the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters? He says, God has made the world, the wisdom of the world look foolish. It's just going to be a foreign language, the exact opposite. They'll hear it and go, wow, that is really dumb. It says in verse 21, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jew because they ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jew and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest human plan. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. It's a foreign language. And this is why we need to have a knowledge of the truth. This knowledge is not just on the surface. And and think about it. I'll, I'll say it this way. What is the ultimate truth of God? The ultimate truth of God is that during the Bronze Age, in a little obscure part of the world, God became a man through a teenage mom and a dad who worked for the Union. All right? And they were blue-collar, somewhat poor, wrong side of the tracks, cruddy town. But then he grew up, he collected a band of misfits and hooligans, basically, to go preach that he was the only way to heaven. And then he's a human sacrifice that dies, but don't worry, three days later, he rose from the dead and he floated up to heaven and he lives there now, but one day he's coming back on a white horse with a sword that comes out of his mouth to kill everybody. Sounds stupid. But, to the world, of course it sounds stupid. Of course it sounds stupid. I think you're for the one woo-hoo down here, though. That's a theologian. All right, so. But it's the truth. But the world's going to look at that and go, oh, they're going to criticize it. I mean, just you'll find it easy. It doesn't take much time. Dawkins is everywhere. Just clip on Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, and they're going to take that whole narrative and go, stupid, 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 stupid. There's nothing wise about that. It's foolishness. You're an idiot if you believe that. Idiots for Jesus. Right on. 
Idiots for Jesus. Because that is the knowledge of the gospel. It is the knowledge of the truth. And yeah, the world doesn't get it, but we get it. And why do we get it? Because we're that much smarter? No. Can we boast that we figured it out, that we're smarter than Richard Dawkins? The guy's just a biologist at a major university in England. That's all. We smarter than Richard Dawkins? We smarter than the critics? Is that what it is? No. We have nothing in which to boast because Paul gets into the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, yet when I am among mature believers, I speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to the world or to the rulers of this world who have soon forgotten such things and will be forgotten. He says, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, and even though it, is, it was made for the ultimate glory before the world began, he says, of this, it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. Are we so smart that we figured out that Jesus is the only way? No. Are we just that intuitive that we could see through the malaise of ideas and we got it? No. It says, God revealed these things to us by His Spirit, for His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. It says, no one can know a person's thoughts except the person's own spirit, and no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given to us. Notice all of the ways that it describes this. Right? But God gave. Right? We received something freely given. Again, we're not so bright that we solved it. Right? It's not like we get grace. I, I think the reality that Paul's getting at is that grace gets us. Right? It's not that we get grace. It's that grace gets us. Grace causes us to realize it's not that we do certain things to earn certain favors it's that we have certain things because christ earned it all and then gave it to us freely and so when the spirit resides in us we go oh i I see that that is the knowledge that i need to understand it's not just facts and data it's something deeper gospel knowledge means learning by receiving Learning by receiving. So it's not like I can just grab my Bible and go, oh, now I'm just going to be a Bible student and I'm going to be the studier and I'm going to impose my mind on its text. I study it so it will study me. Right? That's, that's the knowledge of the truth. It's not just knowledge. It's knowledge of the truth. And so it's something deeper where, again, I look at it, it looks at me. I try to understand it as it totally understands me. Right? So we're learning by receiving. Gospel knowledge means knowing by acknowledging that my life is in the Son. It's just, I, I know, he, he's, he's done it all. He's accomplished it all. He's made it all possible. It's information by revelation. And that's what we see there in verses 10 through 12, right? The Spirit teaches. He shows us. I read the Bible, but then I'm asking God as I read the Bible, man, show me. Help me get this book, not just as content, but as something that contours me. Right? That's the essence of what we're talking about. In fact, gospel knowledge means, and I said this earlier, going deeper into the gospel. Right? Deeper into the gospel. 
so as to be inspired by the profound truth that it is finished applies to you. When Christ was there, nailed, finishing up, and he said, it is finished. It wasn't just for him. It was for you because you were in him when it was finished. In him. When we say you're saved by grace, what we mean is you were in him and it's done. All wrath, done. All judgment, done. All alienation, done. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. You do not mature it. Done. You are in Christ. Done. That is your life. That is my life in Christ. Justified, not guilty, can't be retired, sin paid for. Done. We need to live like it's done. For Paul, what is the knowledge of the truth? It's a simple formula. It's actually the title of a book that's just coming out, and I love the title so much I had to use it this way. Knowledge of the truth is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. And you realize it's finished. It's finished. I'm done. I'm free. I can live with gratitude. Indebtedness that shapes gratitude. I look at that with Paul. I mean, this was Paul's heart. You look at it in Philippians 3 where he says, Man, I was a doer. I had that little inner Pharisee at work that made me a great big Pharisee that hated everything about the gospel until I met the gospel. And after that, he says, All I want is Jesus. I just want to go deeper into the gospel who is Jesus. I don't consider my works anything. In fact, I have no righteousness in myself. I only want the righteousness that Christ gives to me. That is... Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I don't need to bring anything else to the table. I don't need to try to make him more happy with me because I am in him. That is the knowledge of the truth. In fact, I want us to simply see it this way. I'm going to skip some stuff because I will go way long if I don't. All right, so... We'll come back to some of this next week. But I want you to understand that Jesus plus nothing equals everything is very, very simple, but it's hard. This is why it takes the Spirit to awaken us to these things and to wrestle with these things and to live in the context of these things. Because again, the inner legalist, the inner Pharisee, the inner moralist wants to go, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. And don't worry, we'll get there. But we're talking about something that motivates Right? A lot of times, even in our Christian life, fear of wrong things motivates us. The need to excel at things that are already paid for motivates us. The need to accomplish as to somehow earn more favor from God motivates us. And, and that's missing the point. We should be motivated by the fact that, boy, what a gracious God uh, who stepped in and took it all for me. Now, I, I just want to serve them now. I, I love them now. I want to give myself fully to him now. That, that should motivate and so Jesus plus nothing equals everything means some simple things like this. Because Jesus was strong. I can be weak. 
Because Jesus was perfect, I can be imperfect. Because Jesus won, I can lose. Because Jesus succeeded, I I can fail. Because Jesus is extraordinary, I'm allowed to be ordinary. Because Jesus was punished, I can be free. Because Jesus died, I can live. And I can do all of this knowing that there is a rock on which to stand. There is a peace that surpasses understanding. There is a joy that no circumstance can steal. There is a courage that is greater than conquerors. There is a love that touches and heals every corner of the heart. There is a treasure that all the resources of the world cannot match. And there is a hope that no grief can crush, no harm can thwart, and no victory can match. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray together. Jesus, in some ways we're midstream. And you know, even my own heart on this, that that, that there's still more to look at on this. I mean, how we push against this truth and, and, and yet how this truth will shape us by your grace to be people, not just obedient, but more importantly, worshipers. And so I pray that you make our hearts even patient as we are kind of left with a cliffhanger and have more to do. But we leave with the greatest cliffhanger of all, which is you plus nothing equals everything. Jesus, we love you so much. We need you so much. In fact, I want to give an encouragement to anybody in this room that does not know Jesus. You have not said, Jesus, I I need you as the everything. Um... You can come to him and in that see him as your everything today. Because if if you're feeling that sense of this, I need this Jesus, it's because he's already been at work. He's already been stirring your heart. He's already been awakening your life. That's what we already saw today. And so for you, it's a simple, simple thing where you say, Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. I know that I need you to save me, to change me, to cleanse me, to heal me, to complete me. And I want you to do that. I surrender myself to you and your grace. Because you died, you rose for me. You make that your prayer with your words, your heart. He hears that and you become his kid. You're in his family. All those things are true. And you're a person that doesn't have to earn or merit or accomplish or be good enough. Because this message is about taking dead people and making them alive. If you made that your prayer board, we would love to know that. I will be up here in the front afterward on the platform. Just come up and talk to me if you made that your prayer. Talk to maybe the person that brought you if you made that your prayer. We would love to know about that. But it's your prayer in your way to him who loves you. Jesus, again, I thank you so much for your church. I pray for us as your church, even, that we will understand grace even more. And I know in some ways, a topic like this seems almost uh, more information-based, but in some ways, it's the truth of coming to own that our life is in you, our life is hidden in you, and as it says in Colossians 3, you are now our life. I pray that that is what resonates with us. For your name, for your glory, and for the good of your city and the people that are yet to know you. May we be faithful with that simple, pure truth that you plus nothing equals everything. Amen.